This is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Hi everyone, I'm extremely delighted to welcome Philip Zilstra to the podcast today. In this episode, we will be discussing Philip's recently published paper, Mechanisms by which growth and succession limit the impact of fire in a southwestern Australian forested ecosystem. Hello, Philip. How are you? Um, good, thanks, Frank. Wonderful. Well, um, yeah, it's a great paper, some radical takes in it. So we'll jump into that in a moment. But um, perhaps we'll start with just finding out a little bit about where you're from and what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, so... I spent most of my younger years um, working in, in country New South Wales. Uh, I, I was a, a, a kid in Western Sydney and um, moved out to the bush as soon as I could and um, spent a long time working in the, the snowy mountains in southeastern Australia uh, in um, uh, different grazing areas there, mostly uh, sort of working with sheep and a bit of, bit of cattle work and and at that time, um, this is a, a higher area, a higher altitude area, and a lot of the graziers used to burn pastures there to, to get um, fresh growth again for stock in the spring. And so that was one of the jobs that I often did. And that, uh, yeah, it, it kind of got me thinking about fire a bit while I was out there. Wonderful. Um, so perhaps you can talk about uh, what you're up to at the moment, Um specific to your work, um, perhaps what you're hoping to look at in the future as well? Yeah, so I've um, my main work has focused on modelling fire, understanding uh, exactly what's, what's um, causing complex, um, complex behaviours to occur. Uh, and so I've, I've worked on that since probably um, 2003, but... Um, now I'm I'm looking at how that um, how that interacts with changes in vegetation over time. So um, the the big difference with my approach to fire modelling was that um, the, from the beginning I based it on the the species of plants involved and um, the size and the shape of the plants. And so the full full floristic description and structural description of a forest or a, or a heathland and uh, so the obvious implication of that is that as as plants grow and as succession happens, there's going to be changes in fire behaviour, and um, that's that's where my focus lies now is looking at um, how those changes affect, um, I suppose the the severity and the frequency of fire over time and how that interacts with climate and and with the in the ways that we try to manage or interact with with different landscapes oh, that's that's fantastic so perhaps we'll pull it back a little bit and just talk a little bit about the background so you grew up um, in Australia uh, would you have been anywhere near the Murray River am I am I wrong to say that when I lived in the snowies the the headwaters weren't too far from from where I lived um, it was still still a couple of hours but um, but in a straight line, it wasn't too too far off. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you were you were clearly in an environment then that was precipitary for you to become a, an ecologist. Would that be correct? Did you did you find that you know you loved being out in nature and be you know seeing 
the mechanisms of nature as as a kid and whatever you know the perspective of a child's nature would be obviously not that <laughs> complex but yeah no very much um yeah i think my dad was was quite an influence there dad loved uh, the bush particularly the snows he'd grown up there himself and um um when we were kids living in western sydney he'd bring us down there any any chance that he had and uh, i think his love for for the mountains and the the wild places there really rubbed off on us and so um that was i, I was soaked in that growing up and and um and moved down there basically as soon as i could and just trying to understand the way the way everything interacted it it, it fascinated me initially you know, we Western Sydney's not a, a well-off area, and so I grew up in an, in an environment where we didn't think about going to uni generally. But it was mm-hmm. only as an adult that I I decided to to look into science. And um, yeah, I think I was um, was working in a shearing shed at the time when when I decided to to tell the others in the shed over Smoko that um, I was going to go and study science and, and there's just a sort of an awed silence it's <laughs> just such a different thing for anybody to think about well yeah that's um that's remarkable perhaps you can talk about what the um what the ecosystem is like there because i think for us or at least myself i'm speaking for myself in the west and the other listeners who perhaps are in the west australia is quite a remote far off place um for us so perhaps you could discuss what what it's like there um where you grew up and where you're working yeah so i i now work in quite a few places in australia the um the snowies are quite diverse i lived on an aero an area called the monero grasslands and uh, it was a, a rain shadow so we had mountains to the east of us blocking off um coastal rain and to the west of us they were the the higher mountains that would would block the, um, the the snowy sort of weather coming through, and um, so there were there were everything ranging from these these semi-arid grasslands where I lived up through tall forests and subalpine and into alpine country. And now I, the other main places where I work are um, southwestern Australia, which um, is very very. Um, very old geology there um we're talking over billions of years you know they're, they're some of the mm. oldest rocks in the world and um very flat most of it quite different to the snowies um mostly quite dry but a, a very wet little corner down on the, the southern edge and uh and then also I, I work a little bit in some areas of gondwanan remnant rainforest on north coast of new south wales so Again, really, really unique places there where um, there are little valleys hidden away where they're the only place in the world where certain species of, of trees grow or, you know, different plants can be found. And um, you, you'll cross to a new valley and a new plant will exist only in that, that valley there. They're amazing little holdout pockets of, um, of rainforest in a, in a very dry generally quite a hot country wonderful so i'll always ask uh, all of my guests um perhaps you could tell us what your favorite organism is 
and then maybe if it's different your favorite study organism yeah it's really hard to 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 pick a favorite organism actually i it's it's the interactions between them all that that i love um mm-hmm. and the i suppose at the moment i'm um we where i'm living in wollongong where we've got wet forest around us and patches of rainforest and we have um, a bird called a brown cuckoo dove that um, that comes to visit us quite regularly and um, there's, there's a pair of them that will, will come and sit with us and talk to us while we're gardening and um, they've got a you, you hear their calls echoing out through the forest and um, and uh, they'll sometimes if I'm walking around the bush here they'll one of them will, will fly up to me and um, and sit next to me and, and talk to me from a tree and uh, yeah they're, they're beautiful birds so much personality so so I suppose you could say at the moment they're a bit of a favorite fantastic and all right so if we're doing interactions uh, perhaps you can talk about a favorite study site uh, somewhere that you find or somewhere that you just feel particularly at home yeah I, I think it would be really hard not to say the snowies it's um mm-hmm. we uh, we disappear there whenever we can with a uh, I don't get to do a lot of field work there at the moment but um we'll go away walking for a week at a time and and once you get off the track there you won't see anybody else for a week it's it's just wild country and um you forget about the world below for a while. All right, well, wonderful. Uh, I think we can move on to perhaps talk about the paper and some of the sort of quite radical implications of the paper. Please, Philip, could you, in plain terms, explain the sort of novelty of this study? Yeah, so this, this study follows on from from one that we did uh, just a little bit earlier where we, we found... Just, looking at mapped records of fire in southwestern Australia, we found that um, areas that were the longest unburnt were the least likely to have wildfire. And now nearly nearly all of the fire there is prescribed fire. Um, about 8 out of 10 hectares burnt is, is burnt intentionally. And, and it's, it's held up, I suppose, as an example globally uh, for the success of, of prescribed burning to reduce fuel loads. So the, the areas that are long unburned are just areas that haven't yet gotten to, to prescribed burn. But um, what we found was that um, when, they, when they burned an area, you, you had a, a few years where it was unlikely to, to get a, a bushfire in it, a wildfire. But then you had a couple of decades where bushfire was very, very likely. And so we wanted to understand why that was happening. So this particular study we looked at on the south coast in a, uh, a type of forest called red tingle. Red tingle trees are um, they're a really unique tree. There's only about 6,000 hectares that, that are dominated by these red tingle trees and they, they have enormous bases on them, the old trees. They, they, um, they sort of spread out like a, a, a bell at the base and and we'll often get a, a hollow in the base. And there were old photos that I saw as a kid where, you know, there used to be um, roads that would go through the hollows in the bases of these trees. They were so enormous and they get quite tall as well, around 60 metres. But they're also, there's barely any of those old trees left because um, 
once they get a hollow in them, even if they're in mild fire, will get into those trees and and kill them from the inside out, and just cause them to fall over. So so fire is a big issue there. And what we did was was just surveyed a whole lot of different ages of, of the tingle forest to look at how the understory changes and, and how the structure of the forest and the species composition changes. And what we found was that in the first few years after fire, there was, you know, you often have clear ground and it was open for a little while, but then you had a very, very dense understory of regrowth. And as the forest got older, that, that regrowth got taller and you started getting a bit of a space between those plants and, and the ground layer. And then um, when, you, when you got to quite old forests, um, you ended up with quite an open layer on the ground and and I used the fire model that I'd built to to analyze that and what we found was the same pattern that we'd seen in the mapped records that um, that fires were just more severe and harder to control while you had all of that dense growth close to the ground and it's controversial because um, prescribed burning is is uh, it's done so much in that area there, and it's held up as an example of, of a great success. And what I think has confused people is that you, if you don't burn for 10, maybe 20 years, you just see the steadily increasing uh, difficulty to control fire there because all of the plants that you've germinated are getting taller and denser. But if you leave it for a bit longer, you know, after 30, 40 years, by 50 years time, those plants have thinned out again and the fire risk has disappeared again. And that's much more similar to the way things were prior to, um, you know, colonisation of Australia, um, where First Nations there just didn't burn those forests. Um, you know, there were surrounding forests that they would burn, but just very, very small, very focused fires um, along travel routes, around campsites, that sort of thing. And so the main forested area was left unburnt with just these little pathways through it of, of burnt country. And that meant that the main area could, could naturally get old and lose that dense understory. And we no longer allow that to happen. So we've what this suggests is that the bad news is that we've made a, a, a sort of a fire problem there. We, we've, we've created that when we thought we were doing the opposite. <laughs> and the good news is that um, now that we know that, we're able to reduce that fire risk if we're prepared to change course and, and let these forests start, um, start taking care of themselves again a little bit the way they used to. Fantastic. Thank you for that. That's a really great summary of the uh, the paper. Um, so perhaps in lieu of that, um, instead of prescribed burning, you talk about an approach called ecological cooperation. Um, could you talk on talk a bit about what that would look like? Um, is it just a hands off, uh, let nature do its thing? Um, would it require monitoring? Would it require any kind of interventions on the human side? Yeah, well, you at, at the simplest level you could do it with just hands off um, mm. and the forests would probably be better off the fire risk would probably drop 
if if we actually just stepped back and stopped interfering. Um, but we can do better than that. And I think we need to because we have climate change now and because we've converted the whole landscape into this flammable state. So the, the way that we can do better is by understanding points where, where these old forests do provide us with some sort of advantage. And I, I first started thinking about that, I think, back in, in 2002 when I was fighting fires then and we had um, a collapsed Antarctic polar vortex, which means that you just get this cold, dry air and then it eventually became hot, dry air just blowing across the country during spring. And, and so there were uh, fires in spring that um, old locals there who had seen fires in northern New South Wales, you know, all their lives, they said, well, you know, we'll just use this, this rainforest strip along the creek here as a control line and the fire never burns through that. But the fire did burn through it this time. And so all of the plans got thrown out the window. And so we need to know those sort of lines, like where these natural vegetation features can be helpful for, for firefighting. So, so those rainforests might stop fire under certain circumstances. But when they do burn, um, maybe there's other things we can do. And, and, and we did see this a few years ago where there were locals that were actually uh, up in the nightcap ranges in northern New South Wales where there were rainforests there. There were locals actually building control lines which is a you know it's it's a, a strip of bare ground around the fire to, to stop the fire spread um, and they were doing it with just their hands they had no tools they were just crawling around and, and just scratching the, the leaf litter away and that was enough to stop the fire there because even though it was dry enough to burn the fire behavior was so mild so so understanding where those lines are uh, is really important and in, in the tingle forests, we can see that these really old forests, even if they do burn, um, they do allow us to use these more, we, we call them aggressive tactics, where you can more actively go and fight the fire. Because if you can't do that, you, you have to go back to the road and light a back burn and, and you end up, you may you know, quite easily expand the fire rather than keeping it smaller, but it's just a risk you can't you can't take so so we need to understand i suppose where these lines are and that comes down to a lot of fire modeling and a lot of a lot of study to come up with um strategies that we can say well if if this forest of this age burns in this way under these conditions then we can use these resources here to fight fire there and we need to detect fires really quickly and um and uh, get them while they're small so that we can allow those forests to all age into that that older stage there. And there'll always be young burnt patches again, but, but we need to get the majority of the area into that older stage. Um, I've, I've rambled a bit there. There's, there's two stages to that. Um, one of them uh, I, I call reconciliation, which is just understanding that the forest actually works by itself. It doesn't need us to save it from itself. Um, they they were around and surviving for a long time before humans got here. In, instead of looking at it as saying, you know, the forest is just building up fuel and becoming more and more dangerous, the things we're, what we're calling fuel is actually biomass. And biomass is, is all life that isn't us. <laughs> and so if we've classified all life that isn't us as being a hazard that's got to be reduced, 
that's not going to have great outcomes, you know, for the rest of the planet. Um, so first of all, we've got to reconcile ourselves with that reality that that it it's it's other lives and and they function without us. They don't need us to step in and save them. And the second stage is um, is reinforcement, where we where we say, okay, we've created this mess with climate change and by by making everything more flammable, and we can now reinforce these natural controls by coming in and using much better targeted specialist firefighting techniques to to help these forests get back to their their original old states. Right, wonderful. Well, uh, the next question was going to be about the sort of germination of the idea, but I think you've sort of covered it. Um, but I'd like to ask, I think a, a lot of people understand Australia to have, you know, with the wildfires in 2019, I think in particular being something that really caught global attention. Um, I'm not sure if we did cover exactly at what point you decided that you wanted to study fire ecology, because this is a really amazing idea. It fits into the ethos of, you know, natural uh, cohesion, and which is, you know, the whole point of ecology, you know, cohesion between humans and the environment. What was the point for you where you thought this is, this is it, this is the thing I want to dedicate my work to? Yeah, it was, it was back in 2002 when we had that um, extreme fire season and um, so I was fighting fires all over New South Wales during the spring of 2002. Then that summer we had um, a band of lightning came through the snowies where I was working in fire management and um, just hundreds of, of lightning fires right through the Alps from Victoria through to New South Wales and the Australian Capital Territory. And it ended up burning one and a half million hectares. So part of my job, um, I'd, I'd be directly fighting fires. But the main thing I was doing was to actually use the existing fire models to predict what they were likely mm-hmm. to do so that we could we could make plans to contain them. And um, we could say that in three days' time, the fire edge would be at this location here. So... Uh, we've got time to get in a, you know, a control line there, or or to to come up with some sort of strategy at that place. Um, and what I was finding consistently was that the fire models were completely wrong. <laughs> and, um, and I I used a, a I suppose my method for judgment was that there were a few old locals there who had lived in the place. You know, they were multi generational people in that area. And they'd they'd come into the incident control room and say, you know, I think the fire is going to do this today, and you know my my right knee's aching, so I think you know the, <laughs> the fire is going to do this or whatever the, whatever their system was, and and I thought you know, some of these fellows, I, I just tried to um, compare notes with first thing in the morning each day, and we we kind of made a almost like an informal bet just to see who was going to be right that day. And I thought, if I'm not right with this computer modelling far more often than these fellas, then what am I doing? What's the point of this? And uh, and so, yeah, I, I got to the end of those fires and I thought I, you know, I produced some nice-looking maps, but I don't think I actually helped anything. There were times there when uh, the, the model said there's a lot of fuel here, so there'll be extreme fire behaviour. Whereas this other place here, there'll be very little fuel, so it'll be easy to control. And exactly the opposite would happen. 
And and so in one instance, it meant that we might put firefighters in danger if we trusted it. But in another instance, it, it meant that we missed opportunities to contain the fire. And, and I just thought, why is the model getting this so completely wrong? And so that set me off doing a, a PhD to try to understand uh, what was happening there. And, um, and also, uh, I spent quite a bit of time just talking to um, local First Nations people. Um, there was a, an elder there who, you know, very generously helped me to understand certain aspects from, from their perspective. And um, it's just such a different way of looking at the world because our fire models classify everything as just fuel. So all of all forests, all heathlands, all grasslands all have this one rule that, that this fuel accumulates and it's, it's biomass, it's other, other, other lives. Whereas First Nations would look at this and say, well, this stand of five trees is different to that stand of, of trees just right next to it. <laughs> you know, they're entirely different. And um, they'd manage them by, you know, the, the possum that lives in this stand or the, you know, um, that have a, uh, something he, he called bagal kinship relationship mm-hmm. with, with different species there. Everybody... Uh, had a kinship relationship with with different species, and and they had to look out for them and 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 speak on their behalf and um, and get direction from when plants would come into flower or you know when you'd see a bird turn up or you could hear the the wonga pigeons calling in the hills or you know all of these sorts of things. They were paying attention to all of these different little threads of ecology that that we just we just ignore in our in our fire management and understanding and 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 i think that word itself is is part of the issue that the management word we mm-hmm. we look at ourselves as being somehow or other separate from all of them and and we're the ones who were there to manage things when when first nations looked at it as they were one of the species they were there to interact with them and live with them and um that's what we've got to get back to. And so I wanted a, an understanding of, of fire behaviour that was tied in with fire ecology right from the beginning that, um, that respected the influence of each, each plant that was involved there. Yeah, fantastic. So I think I'd like to ask you to, because I think we've, we've established that this sort of one-size-fits-all management or biomass is fuel model doesn't work. Um, and isn't working but for your model um, and for your sort of understanding of reconciliation and ecological cooperation are there any instances be as self-critical as you like is this is this a model that you think would work better as just a general management system I don't want to use the word management but it came up there um, uh, and are there any instances where you feel like perhaps it requires a bit more of a bit of human interaction to stop fires would, would this model be applicable across multiple different ecosystems and different varied ecosystems or is it something that's quite specific to the type of vegetation in in your study area yeah so in theory it should be applicable um, mm-hmm. aqua- across a wide range of, of vegetation because you it, it's controlled by the the leaf traits of the plants and 
you know, the, the shape of those plants, the chemistry, the moisture. You know, if you're using it in a, in a different environment, then you're, you're bringing in those different traits there. Now, that said, I haven't tried it in every environment and, and mm-hmm. there will no doubt be other traits that, that will be informative in new environments where I haven't tried it. So, so it will certainly be improved in new areas. Um, but as far as the other question, though, of, of do we need to step in more severely in some places... Um, yeah, I, th- I think realistically, you know, when, when I talk about ecological controls in forests, I don't think the forest is trying to control fire. It's, um, it, it's something that, that happens as a forest matures, that, that it becomes less flammable because you get uh, you know, straight after a disturbance like fire or after we've logged a forest or something like that, um, you've got plants growing close to the ground where they're easy to ignite and their fuel but given time those plants get taller and once they're tall enough they're out of reach of the flames they um, so they don't burn as fuel now they slow the wind speed underneath them and that actually slows the fire down so so plants start out as fuel but then they turn into overstory shelter which is in a sense you know on our side <laughs> but but they're not doing it to try to stop the fire um, and so it's not going to stop all fires. And yeah. if we have, um, if if we if we have places that we just absolutely need to keep fire away from, there will be other things we need to do. Um, you know, the only way to really stop a fire is is to actually clear away all vegetation. And um, mm-hmm. and and so if you are using prescribed fire. Um, that's why it provides an advantage for the first few years is because you have cleared the understory. And so um, if we're going to use it, then we need to use it wholeheartedly in that sense. We need to say this is a land clearing tool and we'll apply it really, really intensively in these places here. And in some places it might be better to, to just clear the understory with a brush cutter or or whatever the situation is because it's right up the back of the nursing home and you know and we'll we'll protect these places this way but but for the broad landscape um i think we're much better to stand back and and um let the forest recover and do what we can to help it recover it's only those really high priority places where we absolutely need to step in um that that we might want to you know clear vegetation cool right um so that brings it on nicely to the next part which is uh forward looking um so you've not quite serendipitously you know through through your experience come across this model and uh way of sort of managing fire in ecosystems um but what's next where where should the research go towards what do you hope um what changes do you hope your study might precipitate? Yeah, so I'm I'm putting a lot of work now into better understanding how these ecological controls work. Um, you know, we we've narrowed it down to to four main changes in vegetation, just just plant growth. So some plants get taller and get away from the reach of flames. Um, Self pruning. The, the, a lot of plants will drop their, their lower branches, which again increases that gap. Um, just changing leaf traits, 
um, in you know in some places in say southeastern the United States they they talk about mesification a lot there where um, you might start out with a, a longleaf pine forest but if it's not burnt for a while it eventually turns into a, a an oak forest that's um, much much less likely to burn so you get those leaf trait changes and then the biggest influence is is just the self thinning of, of the lower plant layers and so the the tingle study um, showed a lot of influence from self thinning and self pruning but i'm now looking at other ecosystems where the other factors come into play so understanding those is important understanding also um, how those um, those ecological controls interact with um, with say herbivory, um, mm-hmm. even from from insects. There's an area that I'm studying here where we'll get a you know a, a moth that um, that burrows into the trunk and and can can ring back the stem of a young tree, so um, so that you get uh, regrowth from the base of the stem, and instead of the the foliage all being up on top of a trunk, now it's growing from the ground again. <laughs> You know, wow. so so how different populations of these things interact. Um, you know, we have feral deer around here that do similar things. They'll they'll ring bark stems, you know, rubbing horns on them. Uh, sometimes wallabies will will graze selectively graze certain plants, and and that changes the species composition. Mm-hmm. So understanding how all of these other different ecosystem elements interact. Um, and you know, and, and some of those things again can be, um, you know, what, what we call a, a trophic cascade. The the um, the wallabies, for example, in the area that were studied, they're in high numbers because people have been um, sort of getting rid of dingoes in the area because they're worried about dingoes going after sheep. And so, um, so you got rid of the dingoes. Um, the wallabies bred up in numbers, and as a result of that. The wallabies got rid of the mesic species, and you ended up with drier, more flammable species <laughs> growing in that area and a bushfire risk. So, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, understanding those 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 complex connections is fascinating, and that's. Uh, I feel like now I'm starting to get into the interesting side of things, <laughs> and uh, uh, and the big thing, I suppose, where where I hope it will go is is. Um, there are a lot of people who work in fire who who hear this and who've seen it firsthand um, on the ground. I know the firefighters I used to work with um, were very aware that when we burnt certain areas of, of really open forest, we germinated dense layers of, of shrub understory. And, and a lot of these fellas were, you know, they were local tradies or farmers and, um, mm-hmm. and there were... There was a government policy that said it had to be burnt, and and they hated doing it because they said we've turned it into a fire risk, and and so people are aware of it, but it's a matter of getting it changed at the high policy level, and there's going to be, yeah, a lot of work before that happens. I think. Well, yeah, power to you guys. That you know, science science sometimes needs to be, you know, corrected. Of course, it's it's a record that, that is defined by building on the existing or eradicating the existing uh, paradigm. So, yes. so just before we wrap up, um, I'd like to ask if there are any shout outs you'd like to give, uh, can be anyone 
a, a past supervisor, your parents, you know, co-authors, anyone who's sort of not just helped you with this paper, but just helped you along the way to where you've where you've got to. Yeah, I suppose um, the, the biggest shout out right now, I think, would be um, the people I worked with in Southwest WA who, um, you know, they've been aware of this happening there for so long. Um, I, I got involved in Southwest WA because of a farmer who lived next to an old patch of tingle and he had seen all of these other old areas of tingle burnt during the 60 odd years that he'd lived there and um you know saw them change from being open forests into dense regrowth and big fire hazards and um you know and they've been trying to get somebody to listen for for so long now so you know i i think they're such impressive people they're they're tireless and they've really fought for those forests for a long time so it's been a real honor to work with them Wonderful. And perhaps any advice you'd like to give to um, young budding ecologists or people looking to get into the field? Uh, what's something that uh, young Philip would have liked to have heard? Ah, uh, yeah, that's that's hard. <laughs> um, the, the, I mean, coming into the fire side of things, um, what I suppose what what was a, a, a big breakthrough for me was realizing just how little was known that um, I, a lot of things seemed like they, you know, I'd I'd be told this is the, this is the correct understanding of a subject. And I thought, well, that, that just doesn't make sense to me Mm -hmm. the way it is, but you know, who am I? What, what would I know? And so I suppose I would say, um, you know, don't assume you're right, but, um, but don't give up too quickly. If something doesn't seem right to you, just just keep asking questions, and and um, either you'll better understand the subject, or you might discover there's something that needs improving. So yeah, wonderful. I think that's that's a great piece of advice to you know, challenges based on experience. Um, I think that's that's a nice thing to wrap up on. I think um, so. Yeah, uh, just before we finish, I'd like to. Let everyone know that a link to the paper will be available in the description of this podcast episode. And yeah, I'd just really like to thank Phil for their time. Um, and I hope everyone's enjoyed listening. Thank you, Phil. Thanks so much, Frank. <laughs>